literally you are three seconds behind me. Really? Three. That's the gap between us. Damn. Is there anything you can close there? Nope, I've closed everything. That's on the network. Everything is closed. Like any other apps on the computer that's using nope. the internet or anything? Nope. None. It's literally just Zoom and Hindenburg. I've closed everything, is what I just heard. Okay, it's going to go well. <laughs> Yay, podcast. Tell you what, just speak much quicker to make up for the, uh, the fracturization. <laughs> and also try and anticipate anything I'm going to say by three seconds. Uh-huh. Cool. Yes. <laughs> When it sounds like I'm three seconds away from the ending, for the end of what I'm saying, just try and come in. Okay, great, 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 great. It'll be fine though when it's all synced up, so it won't matter. Yay! Uh, oh, intro. Was that not the intro? Do people not want to just hear about our network problems? My network people... problems? Sorry, I put those network problems on you then for a second. I know, right? It's the injustice. But <laughs> in many ways, isn't the Londo, the Londo, Londo-centric nature of our country the real cause of the network problems around around the UK? Quite possibly. We don't have we don't have fibre. So no. And whose fault is that? London, hoarding all the fibre. I blame Which, Sadiq Khan. Yeah, hi, hoarding all the fibre. It's got all the Belvita, mm-hmm. all the... <laughs> Prunes. All the bran. Yeah. I haven't, just... I haven't pooped in weeks, Paul. <laughs> I haven't pooped since we moved back up north. The sheer opulence of the frequency of which we poop here in London is ridiculous. Damn. Yeah. That's why the Thames looks the way it does. <laughs> He's the man with the golden gun. You're listening to Jen and the Film Critic. Lulu. <laughs> Lulu, get out of here. Oh my God. Scuttle, scuttle, scuttle. There she goes. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) You're listening to Jen and the Film Critic, a Screen Mayhem podcast. My name is Jen Blundell and with me as always is my film critic, Paul Salt. Say hello, Paul Salt. Hello, everyone. The name is Salt. Paul Salt. We don't have a Bond film to talk about. No, we don't. We don't. We don't. Well, you just got onto the Christmas Christmas vibes by watching your Christmas. (laughs) Tell me about your Christmas adjacent films. I, my Christmas and- Roger Moore's Bonds. <laughs> yep, Roger Moore's Bonds, Jason and the Argonauts, uh, oh, okay. The Mummy, Mask of Zorro, these yes, kinds of yes, movies in yes, my head. Yes. It's because it's not entirely my fault. These are the kinds of things that get programmed to be on the television over the Christmas weekend. Mm. Indiana Jones? Indiana Jones, totally. It's just yeah. family friendly. Um, you know, 20 years ago, it would have been all the war films that would yeah. have been The Great Escape and Ice Cold and Alex and such, which don't get too much of a look mm. in these days. We're more about that 90s kind of... 90s and 80s action adventure films. How about um, like some of the the musicals? I also associate like oh, Sound yeah. of Music, The King and I. Yep, uh, uh, My Fair Lady. Yeah, yeah, a lot those of sorts these of get things shown. Yeah, as well. Totally, Hollywood, old Hollywood musicals. It's whatever you can program during the day on the terrestrial channels. Yeah. Um, Gone with the Wind was playing one mm-hmm. particularly bizarre Boxing Day. Mm-hmm. I remember, and it was just it's quite good and epic because then you can just notice that it's on and be like oh let's sit and watch this and then as everyone drifts away to do various things they'll just walk back through that room yeah and see like, that it's well, still on scarlet up to now <laughs> it's the kid did i miss the bit where the kid dies oh <laughs> gran gran you spoiled it i love that kid i <laughs> kid gets like five scenes and they die. star the star <laughs> the star of the film <laughs> Well, well, it's not Christmas well, yet, sort of. No, well, kind it's of. Dep- it's up to you. Old kind of. November. 
Yeah, November. Um, November. And that means we've got November stuff that you've watched and I haven't. You're going to tell me about it. That's the way it's going to work. So let's let's get right into it. Go on then. Well, as promised in our LFF episode, we will talk more about the latest film from a certain Mr. Martin Scorsese. 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 Are you introducing the Spanish lisp? Scorsese. Scorsese. God almighty, what an odd place Europe is, especially around the Mediterranean. Yes, and speaking of which, it is Killers of a Flower Moon. Pew, pew. Exactly. It's it's that kind of space-faring adventure. Yeah. Uh, Starring Leonardo DiCaprio as Ernest Burkhart, a low-life thug who is manipulated by his villainous uncle, William King Hale, Robert De Niro, to seduce and marry Osage Nation member Molly Kyle uh, as part of a huge scheme to rob the Osage Native Americans of their oil rights and money, and then ultimately destroy and completely undermine the Osage Nation itself in a kind of massive act of genocide. Yay! So, hooray for white people. <laughs> um, I've seen this film twice now, and must say seeing it a second time, with the ending in mind, because the ending is quite extraordinary, watching it a second time with that ending in mind, it did ease many of the concerns I had. Okay. Um... Because I had seen Martin Scorsese talk about the film before I saw it, and he said that he had to rewrite the film, the script, because he didn't want to just write about the white men, you know, at the mm-hmm. heart of it, but also wanted the Native Americans of the Osage Nation to be characters and to have a point of view within the film. Nice. Watching the film after hearing that, I could only inc- conclude that he had kind of failed in that attempt. Because the film is absolutely about the killers of the Flower Mm. Moon and not the victims. This is the story of men who are willing to destroy an entire people to get rich. And what's most striking about it is they do so so passively. It's distressing to just see the matter-of-fact way with which these people are killed and sort of just dispassionately dispatched. Uh, It's... And that's consistent with Scorsese's main area of interest, which has been the angry young man in society and the older men who sort of facilitate that um, and the power that they both yield. Um, What's frightening is the evolution of that idea throughout his work, because you go from Travis Bickle, this kind of weird outsider, lonely guy who's completely rejected by the system. um, But then since then, the violent men have become less emotional and more powerful. You know, we've gone via all of the gangsters and into sort mm. of the, the legitimate evil of the past 20 years of Scorsese. Mm-hmm. Um, and now you have this idea of Jordan Belfort, the character from The Wolf of Wall Street, kind of as the guiding spirit of America. Mm. You know, all the greed and ent- entitlement and single-minded detachment from ethical values rooted in a genocidal system of oppression within, you know, yeah, of oppression. And it's just, although having said that, it, it takes a long time, but eventually the Osage Americans are eventually able to get the newly formed Federal Bureau of Investigations to investigate the murder. And although they use very brutal tactics, they are fairly un- unambiguously a force for good. Okay. The the FBI, they're the good guys who come cool. in and sort of help nice. put the bad guys in. Which, you know, is fine. But again, Scorsese kind of likes the law to be pure. Sure. So that the act of rejecting it is pure. Mm-hmm. Only Ernest's greed and weakness is going to stand between these men and real justice, not a systematically racist legal system, which might betray a slight optimism on Scorsese's part, but nevertheless, it puts the impetus for doing right directly onto Leonardo DiCaprio's character. Mm. <sighs> but yes, having said all of that, the glimpses we do get of the Osage Nation, its people, its customs, and its beliefs 
are extraordinary. You have amazing performances from the likes of Cara Jade Myers and Tantu Cardinal, who command every scene they're in. But then you have the big show-stopping performance of Lily Gladstone. Yeah. Who absolutely deserves the Oscar buzz that she's getting. She's monumental, starting the movie with this palpable, quiet dignity and gravitas, which is gradually sort of stripped away by the indignities um, that she faces, you know, and that her loved ones face. Mm. And it's heartbreaking in places. And I do understand the arguments that the film would have benefited from being entirely her point of view. Yeah. And I would have loved more sequences with the Osage. And in particular, the spiritual vision sequences that we see, sort of omens of doom and visions of an afterlife, which frankly are amongst the most extraordinary things that Scorsese has ever filmed. Wow. Um, you know, in a couple of places just moving me to tears. As to the profound sequence of... Uh, there's a sequence where the FBI are meeting in a cornfield and they notice that one of the guys there is just casually committing insurance fraud by <laughs> setting the uh, farm on fire, like the um, the actual wheat yeah. on fire. So you've got these men just sort of fanning the flames, <laughs> you know, just destroying nature in order to reap money, reap reward. Hmm. Um, it's this g- gorgeously sort of poignant metaphor, but also just one of the most incredible things because Scorsese shoots through the heat, you know, that rippling kind of heat mm. effect. He shoots through it, and so you've got these weird swirling colors of orange and these men wandering around inside of it and the incredible score by um i think it's robbie robertson yeah and it's the final score with him because he has unfortunately passed away Mm. before the release of the uh of the film but absolutely terrifying score um really wonderful but yeah you do want to spend more time with molly and her family but that's a different movie this is scorsese's film Mm -hmm. and there is no better director at exploring the darkness of the human heart so of course he's going to be drawn to the killers there's just enough light in it to really get a sense of the scale of these men's crimes. And it's fine for Scorsese to tell this story. The problem is that Osage, um, no Osage or Native American filmmaker in general is going to get the same budget to tell their side. Mm. That's the problem. Yeah. And, you know, you can talk about Scorsese's role in all that and what his moral obligation is as a result. But, you know, ultimately it's an unfair system that's denying the other side from being told. This is a perfectly valid story to tell, but it is going to be troubling for some. It's certainly true. Mm. Um, I mentioned the ending before. The ending is extraordinary. It's a powerful act of unmasking mm-hmm. that demonstrates a brutal self-awareness and completely t- contextualizes everything you've seen. Um, yeah, I love this film. I love this film because of the power of the filmmaking. Every part of it is working perfectly. Every scene is doing something incredible. Every person working on it is at the top of their game, particularly Thelma Schoonmaker, the editor, and um, Rodrigo Prieto, I believe the cinematographer. And yeah, ultimately, this is a well-considered film that is not embarking on anything without purpose. It's disturbing, but it's extraordinary. So it's definitely all five stars. Cool. Sounds cool. It's really good. It's... It's well, did you ever, how much of the Scorsese films have you seen? Have you seen Goodfellas? No, I don't know. Hmm. hmm. Name some Scorsese, name some, wait, name some Scorsese films for me, please. Scorsese. Um, Taxi Driver? Nope. Is one of the big ones, Wolf of Wall Street? Nope. Uh, the Aviator? Yes, I have seen Ah, that. Gangs of New York? No. No, no. Ah. no. <laughs> um, Shutter Island is probably unlikely. God, what else? The uh, the Departed? No. Silence? No. Raging Bull? Uh, No. 
Silence was the one in Japan with Adam Driver. No. Um, no, no. And Andrew Garfield on the island. Uh, Hugo? Oh, that's the animated one with the boy in the train station? Not animated, but yeah, it's a boy in a train boy station. Boy in a train station. I might yeah. have seen that. Okay, so one and a half. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> if I did, it one... was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, I'd recommend it because... This film, like so many of his others, is this big, titanic, monumental crime film, essentially. Okay. But it's amazing to see him apply his principles of sort of studying low lives and just mm. greedy scumbags and apply it to, yeah, the absolute sort of systemic racism of America. Interesting. I remember when he w- we w- he was asked a question about um, The Wolf of Wall Street mm. in, um, uh, in the talk that I saw of him. And... Um, I can't remember the exact thing he said, but he said something like, I think he got asked a question by Edgar Wright, who was sort of curating the whole thing. What do you think of the sort of people who were involved and, you know, how do you think attitudes have changed or that kind of thing? And he said, well, they won an election. Hmm. You know, the people in Wolf of Wall Street, the sort of scammers, the con artists, they're the ones who won in 2016. So it's a quintessentially American trait. Mm -hmm. (sighs) Damn. But you you know what? Go Speaking of quintessentially American. Mm-hmm. Equal in Gravitas. Mm-hmm. We have the concert film event of the year. <gasps> if you discount the re-release of Stop Making Sense this summer. It's mm. Taylor Swift, the era's tour. Taylor Swift. I can't believe they announced her that way. <laughs> and in the red corner, Taylor, Taylor Swift. Swift. And then she came out and fought Mike Tyson. Yeah, and she won. She That's the won. real kicker. Yeah, well, the real kicker was when she kicked him in the face. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he, yeah, he can't. She kickboxed and he box boxed, so it wasn't fair. Yeah, he, really. you can't send a kickboxer up against a box boxer. No, no, <laughs> it's not fair. And yeah. Taylor knew that, but she did it anyway, and we all love her for it. Yeah. This is the epic Queen. cinematic rendering of the Era's tour, in which Taylor Swift performs hits. From 10 of her albums, which, if I understand correctly, did not have individual tours of their own, is oh, the idea. So okay. for one reason or another, you know, too early in her career, during COVID, etc. These are the 10 albums that didn't have, like, How many albums has she done? <laughs> Quite a lot, it turns out, Jen. Damn. <laughs> Swift then Google worked. That. I'll just Google that. <laughs> you just Google that. You, you do some Googling. <laughs> You, you keep talking whilst I'm... Oh, uh... God. Okay. Swift then worked with, directly with exhibitors, bypassing studios to procure a very short notice uh, release date, which ended up panicking a bunch of film studios who then moved the releases of their big films. So Taylor, <laughs> Taylor Swift successfully disrupted Dumb Money, The Exorcist Believer, and Priscilla. Wow. Yeah. The gambit paid off, as this is now the most successful concert movie of all time, beating out Jonathan Demme's Stop Making Sense. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think that was the second place. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) So, there's been a lot of talk about this film, as it has yielded some rather shocking footage of febrile audiences standing up and dancing and singing, screaming, literally rolling in the aisles, Cell phones out with flashlights like it was a concert, crying, laughing, madness. Wow. Wait, now I... cinema audiences? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, cinema audiences are reacting as if it were the concert. Well, so... hey, look, those tickets were hard <laughs> to get hold of, I heard. so Those tickets were a nightmare to get hold of, so Swifties are flooding to the cinemas. And 
Yeah. I saw this film in the very little Odeon on Tottenham Court Road. Uh-huh. I should have gone to the IMAX. I wish I could have, but that's how mm. timings worked out. But even in my little cinema, with like honestly two dozen people in it, mm-hmm. there was a palpable sense of excitement. Not uh. least from the seat next to me, which happened to contain Katie Maiden, who <laughs> sang all the way through all three hours of that movie. Wow. <laughs> she was not alone. <laughs> not me. The other people in the theatre. Wow. We're singing along well. It was boisterous. Wow. But you know, there's an old story about the Beatles going out to Japan to go on tour. Mm-hmm. Having toured around Europe and the States, they were used to the cacophony of crowds. But they found in Japan that with the uh, crowd being so polite and well-behaved, they had forgotten how to play. <laughs> <laughs> because they could suddenly hear themselves for the yeah. first time. So whether or not that's actually true, it bespeaks the idea that the mania around an artist can completely eclipse and, you know, erode Mm. their ability to actually practice their art. So the question begs itself. Is she any good, yeah? Is she any good? (laughs) How is the actual film and how is the concert? And it's a tricky thing to separate those two because it's a relatively straight presentation of the concert. Mm -hmm. You get a credible view, obviously. You're right up there amongst the thing. You're getting incredible angles and the editing is... You know, emphasizing clarity rather than, sure. you know, anything expressive. Stylistic. Or, mm. Yeah, stylistic. You're just, you, you're going to see it. You're going to see yeah. what the show is. You're going to get right up there with Taylor. You're going to, you know, see the whole staging. And there's a great flow from sort of one song to the next and from one album to the next, which suitably sort of disrupts things. Mm. And there's a sense of energy that propels you through the night with occasional, fairly charming interjections from Swift that, you know, have that feel of good crowd management. Sure. She's you a know, pro. Yeah, professional, casual interaction. Mm. Um, I didn't have a huge a huge familiarity with Swift as a performer beforehand. Mm. And I guess I kept waiting for the big moment, uh, the high note that no other performer could reach, the dance move that must have taken years to perfect, the instrumental virtuosity that would have made all of this make sense to me, the mania. Yeah. That moment didn't come, but then I realized that was the point. Yeah. And that's why the mania. You can hit the same notes that uh, Swift hits. Sure. You can do the dances that her and her entourage do. Yeah. And you can learn to do what she does on the piano and the guitar. She's accessible. And mm. I think that's part of the Swifty relationship with her is that she's writing songs that are very much speaking to people. And you can't, what you can't learn to do is write the lyrics that she's written. Because mm. although this was not the best environment to really consider those lyrics and their meaning, <laughs> I completely felt the very meaningful connection being forged mm. with a very sizable audience bland like whatever you know it, it's it's speaking to people from yeah. an actual experience and you can appreciate that i would have liked more reaction shots from the crowd because i did love the insight we get when you see just how excited everyone is by her and her presence the mm. moments when she gets close to the crowd and when people just freak out from having you know been seen by her that kind of thing i'd have liked more of but i understand why yeah but it was very interesting to see her sing so relatably, even when she starts singing about fame. You know, mm. things about, you know, the reputation era thing was quite interesting. Okay. Anyway, I'm not here to review Swift as an artist, but so far as I can see, the film is a very good representation of what makes her big and, yeah, effectively communicates that. Um, the film has this liquefying effect on Swifties, which <laughs> I don't think should be taken for granted. I don't think you could have just thrown up you know, grainy cell phone footage of Taylor Swift onto this big screen and just had them react the same way. Mm. There is artistry here. And although it's no Jonathan Demi with, you know, stop making sense, it does a great job of capturing the excitement of the night and yeah. of Taylor Swift's showmanship. So even though 
I'm unfortunately not now able to count myself as a Swifty. I still think this film deserves four stars. Cool. All right. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. It was a spectacle. Yeah. It was a big budget spectacle, and you love you love to see it. Cool. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. It was a laugh. Had a good a time. Yeah. And, and it's and nice. Katie and Katie was happy, eh? Katie was deliriously happy. And That's all that matters. That is all that matters. Um, and she, oh, incidentally, she hated Killers of Flambin. <laughs> oh, yeah. Fair enough. So, one for me, one for her, I hope. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I feel like it's nice if people who tend not to go to the cinemas get to see the cinema space in a slightly different way. And anything yeah. that gets people excited about the cinema is fine by me. As for cinema etiquette, I think you just have to know what you're buying yourself into. Mm-hmm. You know, because it- there's all sorts of things. The overexcitement in general you know, causes controversy at actual concert concerts, like whether it's appropriate to stand up, you know, if you should sing along, that kind of thing. So I kind of like that that kind of energy is now being communicated to the cinema space. Exactly. And it's it's not, you're not just watching a film, you're going to get a slice of the concert that was most, you know, a lot of fans weren't able to get actual tickets for. So let them have a little miniature concert. The yeah. singing and the dancing and the cheering. Like, you're not going to go sit there. If you want to sit and watch it quietly, yeah. just buy the DVD once it comes out and watch <laughs> it at home, okay? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The, this this was hugely benefited from the crowd. And I think that's something that's great as well, because it reminds you that cinema is a shared experience. Mm. You know, and that, you know, I did recently saw I, I see Stop Making Sense. I got <laughs> the Blu-ray of it and watched it at home and ah. loved it. But I couldn't help but think of how much more impactful it would be in a crowd full of people who also love this music. Yeah. You know, a song starts that everybody knows and there's that, you know, buzz. Yeah. You absolutely can have the concert atmosphere on a cinema screen. You can mm. make that happen. You know, because it's the people you're sharing it with that make it happen. So, yeah. yeah. If there's still an opportunity to do so, even for non-Swifties, I recommend the Eras Tour. It is something. Fun. Yeah. Cool. But... Let's move, let's move on to an equally powerful female voice in cinema. Joanna Hogg. Ooh. She secured funding for a second film within a year. Is the British film industry becoming less horrifically sexist <gasps> and underfunded? Oh, it was finished over a year ago and has been waiting this long to get distribution. Oh, great, oh, great. Okay, 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 okay. <laughs> good, 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 good. It's The Eternal Daughter. Okay. Tilda Swinton uh, returns, starring as a middle-aged filmmaker named Julie and as her, as her mother, Rosalind. Uh, it's another dual role for Swinton. Mm. Although the first that she's undertaken with uh, Joanna Hogg, because although she's been in her movies for ages, was in both the souvenir films. Mm. Um, yeah, this is the first time she's done like a dual, the dual role thing um, here. But it's f- also one that's far less rooted in the sort of caricature and flashy makeup effects as seen in films like Suspiria and the many other mm. films where Tilda Swinton's played multiple roles. Uh, the two women book themselves into an isolated hotel room in the middle of the foggy British countryside. Uh, they seem to be the only guests, enjoying the company only of a surly receptionist, uh, played by Carly Sophia Davis, very well, it's very amusing, mm. and the kindly old gardener Bill, played just lovingly by Joseph Middell. God, he's gorgeous. Mm. Uh, Julie fills her days with trying to work uh, trying to work on a screenplay she's uh, writing, whilst also doting on her elderly mother and contesting the strange phenomena of the hotel. Odd Ooh. noises, ghostly figures, and an eerie sense of unease. Uh, the hotel was also formerly her mother's home when she was a girl. So together they explore her memories of the place whilst she contemplates the morality of mining her dear old mum for material for her next film. Mm-hmm. So obviously there's an autobiographical thing going on here with 
you know, Joanna Hogg thinking about and ruminating on her own mother. It's a very intensely personal film, um, as indeed Joanna Hogg's films tend to be, you know, ever since, you know, I, I mm. never saw her first film. I think Archipelago was the first film of hers I saw. Yeah. But you could tell that she was speaking from experience with that. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was very relatable. No one could have. No one could have imagined that. (laughs) Yeah, but when I I saw her interviewed after the film at the BFI, and she explained that she had this idea a long time ago to make this film, but felt very uncomfortable making it, um, you know, making a film about her mother and the relationship they have. Mm. Her mother ended up dying during the post-production of this film, and she talked about the guilt uh, that she felt in not sharing more about the film with her because she didn't really want to tell her what it was about. Mm-hmm. And now there's no opportunity to do so. And those anxieties, that sense of potential exploitation, you know, of personal relationships Mm. for art or experiencing another person's ghosts, you know, by taking on their kind of story are very much central to the film. Swinton is incredible because she's not doing the sort of big caricature thing, which does have a place and it's really entertaining to watch. But here she's bringing these two women to life. They speak with the same voice, but are very different in the language they use. The mother seeming anachronistically old-fashioned, but they both have this gorgeously well-observed manner to them that bespeaks real people and is very Mm. relatable, I think, in the same Mm. way Archipelago was. Um, Then you have the ghost story elements. It's a a beautiful sort of autumnal getting into winter aesthetic and a very Mm. inventive use of red and green light, sort of classic horror movie colours in order to create something that feels somewhere between an English ghost story and a Jallo film, aesthetically, not in terms of anything else. <laughs> There's no jump scares, you know, no gore. Okay. It's it's just a chilly sense of unease that plays into the idea that this really is a film about loss and nostalgia in the literal sense. Um, there's a sense of being like a British Mike Flanagan about it, and the idea of ghosts being the sort of pain of the past, which is a funny thing to say, because Flanagan is ultimately drawing from the same places as Hogg, you know, including the classic ghost story for Christmas films of the 1970s mm. and Britain's fine tradition of um, sort of English uh, ghost poems and stories, some of which make an appearance within the film. I think this stands as one of the best films of 2022, perhaps the last great film of that year, distant year now. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's five stars. Okay. Gorgeous. Gorgeous cool. film. And I saw it with me mam. Oh, was, your mam. Uh, with me old mam. So it was, uh, yeah, a lot to relate to there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Nice. During, during the Q&A, a woman was like, I actually came here with my mum and Tilda Swinton was like, oh, where is she? And I'm like, I'm here with mine too. <laughs> Yay! My mum's here mom. too. Give my mum attention, Tilda. 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 Tilda Swinton. Tilda. Tilda. Look, Tilda. 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 Look at me, mum, Tilda. <laughs> look at me, old mum. Ma'am, wave at Tilda. <laughs> oh, where'd you go? Oh, yeah, she, she left. Wait, Tilda, wait. She's gone to the toilet. <laughs> just hold on. Just keep looking this direction. She'll just be five minutes, maybe ten. <laughs> Don't say anything else until she gets back. Tilda, Tilda, <laughs> pay attention, Tilda. Jen. Yeah. It is with a grim sense of responsibility we have to turn away from Tilda Swinton. Boo! But my mum's not back yet. She will be, and when she comes back, we will be talking about the latest. Marvel film. Uh, yeah. Okay. Wait, what's this? It's the 33rd film in the franchise. I have no idea what this is. The Marvels. Oh. 
What? Didn't we do this one already? <laughs> we did Didn't not. Didn't this come out years ago? <laughs> no, this is I'm a sequel to else. Captain Marvel. Okay. With Brie Larson's Captain Marvel returning. Wait. Has this one got Flash in? No, didn't, we did nope. do that one already. <laughs> Flash is DC. We did do that one. To be honest, it is very similar to all the others. Oh, the with Shazam and the Flash and all the rest. They mm. are all the same. But this is a sequel to Captain Marvel, the Ms. Marvel TV series, and picks up on threads from WandaVision and Secret Invasion. Okay. Good lord. The premise wow. is uniquely awkward to describe, but essentially three superheroes, the aforementioned, Mm. all team up to fight against an evil alien who wants to destroy various worlds in order to harvest their resources so they team up and fight do that they do that sure yeah now i recently mentioned that we were not going to cover superhero films in any great depth unless they do something particularly noteworthy or different because this is all getting too ubiquitous same problems same virtues and i am sticking to that because this is just a slightly i want to emphasize slightly (laughs) below average effort for the mcu wow you know, if you want to pull up the Marvel formula tip box, you'll find everything here is just slightly worse than usual. Awkward humor, check. Four sentimentality, check. Terrible action, check. Ropey effects generated by an exhausted and overworked army of effects artists, check. Weak villain. Meme-worthy moment to try and generate buzz on social media, double check. Over-reliance on intertextuality, not as bad as usual. There's not too many references in this. Okay. So that's one point for it. But, I don't know, there's there's... There's some prep work required to get the initial premise. The first half hour is going to be a bit heavy going for anyone who's decided to make this their first Marvel film. <laughs> why would you? <sighs> well, why would you? I, on the virtue side, the the three main characters are fine. They're very good in the two scenes of bonding they get given amidst okay. the general plot emphasis. Anyway, the general public continues to be as exhausted as I am with all this, and the film is expected to underperform. But you know, the great sin of this is that Ike Perlmutter held back good representation and equality for so long that the franchise is only now finally diversifying just as its cultural relevance is on the decline. And obviously that's going to give fuel to the go-woke, go-broke brigade brigade, Mm. who are going to conflate the two things. Not that they've been making the same film for the last, what, 15 years now? (laughs) But now they're starting to include girl characters and turn it into a girl franchise, you know, and it's like go away little kids seeing themselves in these movies and little non-white girls in particular mm. that's not nothing yeah. they deserve better movies but it's not nothing yeah so yeah two stars it's fine but we're a long way from fine being enough to justify the stranglehold that these children's <laughs> films have on popular culture mm. it's marvel these days just reminds me of mcdonald's <laughs> it's yeah. you know exactly what it is it's not very good for you. It's not very nourishing. There's a sort of addictive quality that has you coming back in order to consume it. It's extremely popular, but you wouldn't expect a food critic to go back and review every new item they release. No. Fair enough. And also, the other, the end of that analogy is it would probably be healthier for all of us if we just stopped eating it. Yeah, and probably better for the planet too. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And special, mm. if, if by the planet in this analogy we mean special effects artists. Yeah, 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 that's what I mean. Obviously, the natural That's what analogy. we always mean. That's what I always mean. When people say save the uh. planet, they do mean special effects artists. <laughs> God bless them. Those God poor, them. poor fools. Mm. Anyway, enough Hollywood fast food. Here are five excellent movies in a row. I wrote Ooh. before I rearranged the order. Let me just check that. One, two, three. Uh, three. Three in a row. And then okay. there's a bit of disruption and then some more. Okay, great. Oh, I think we've already had one of them, I'm afraid. I think... Uh, oh, Paul, bump- this is I, going downhill very quickly. I, I bumped up Eternal Daughter, sorry. Um, nevertheless, we've got some really <laughs> good ones, including this. This, 
Yeah, uh, don't skip ahead to the bad ones. <laughs> Stay, listen to the good ones too. Listen to the good one. This is a big one. This is Anatomy of a Fall. Aha. Uh-huh. Sandra Hula, mm-hmm. uh, one of the year's MVPs, having also appeared in um, uh, Zone of Interest, plays a woman whose husband is found dead. <gasps> he has either fallen from the attic of their remote mountain home with no oh. neighbors and no one around, or he has been hit over the head and pushed over the side. The only witness is their visually impaired son, who was out at the time but did discover the body and may have heard a crucial argument before he left the home. Ooh. Already this is building into a perfect sort of Hitchcockian kind of, you know, murder mystery kind of thing. But what makes this film fascinating and compelling is that it is fully engaging in mystery kind of tropes, whilst also pulling apart the mechanisms of true crime fiction and documentaries. Mm. It plays with your sympathies, forcing you to make assumptions and forge prejudices, prejudices, uh, and then force you to question how they were formed and what is actually true. Uh, Antoine Reynards is the prosecutor and he has been perfectly cast as someone you want to hate. He's (laughs) aggressive, casually misogynistic and arrogantly dismissive of witnesses. He is a perfect manifestation of the legal system. But then there is so little evidence. And so the entire case is just conjecture and bad faith arguments speculating on the mental state of the victim and the, the widow and potential murderer. She is incidentally the only suspect because okay. it's unfeasible that someone else would have been able to murder him. So either it's an accident, suicide, or she killed him. Okay. We have constant revelations of a gripping sort of courtroom drama, but it's not a new piece of forensic evidence that comes in. It's rather something that's going to allow the jurors and we, the audience, to judge the characters further based on character testimony. Maybe it's extracts from the wife's book, because she's an author, a recording of an argument they had earlier, testimony from a psychiatrist about the care he was receiving, all presented in a language that makes it very clear that this is not about the truth. Characters can't say the true mm-hmm. thing or express their emotions fully. It's about convincing the jury. So it's like a pol- it's like a political debate. And it's a little excruciating for that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, but imagine. ultimately, it's a film about private lives being intensely scrutinised. You know, if someone you loved turned up dead tomorrow, how much damning evidence would there be that you secretly wanted them dead of anyone that you care about? (laughs) How many arguments have you had in public? How many people heard you say, oh, God, I'd like to kill that guy? You know, honestly, someone could off you tomorrow and I would go down for it. (laughs) Especially if they get your phone. I just have a stack of doodles, like a foot high of me killing you in different ways. And if that's not evidence, I don't know what is. You give me one each Christmas. It's my favourite part of the year. Yeah, I do. I give you one of the nice ones, though. Oh, yeah. One of the ones it's where always... you die quickly. Aww. Aww. <laughs> the rest you give to my family, and they yeah, love it. They, they, they do put love them it. Up. They love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The film is directed by Justine Triette, uh, the first of hers I've seen, but my God, is this stylish and superbly Ooh. accomplished. It's slick. Occasionally jarring when it needs to be intense, right from the beginning, which starts mm. with an interview between, um, oh god, uh, Hula? Yeah, uh, between Hula's character and just a student who's come to visit her, who's mm. the only other witness to the day before the murder, ha- murder or suicide happened. Um, yeah, you're right there in this intense situation, which is just. Oh god, it is really absorbing immediately. And Hula creates a really rich character. She's this softly spoken German woman living in France and has the Mm. language barrier, um, who plays cool and assertive when she has to, as well as shy and demure when she has to, um, when she's under the prosecutor's scrutiny. 
Meanwhile, Swan, our lord, looks like an anime character in this film with his sort of boyish face and big crop of grey hair. He's kind of beautiful and very mesmerizing and reassuring. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoy him quite a bit. Nice. Um, But of course, the real star is Messi, who plays the loyal dog, Snoop, and uh, (laughs) truly deserves the Palm Dog prize that that he received at Cannes this year. He's a very good dog and the hero of this film. So yeah, it's five stars. This is honestly five stars this is one for of those films. Five stars for the dog, five stars for the films, five stars for Sandra Hula. Mm. This is one of those films that you just watch and think, oh God, films are good. <laughs> if you had a particularly troubling existential day of watching the Marvels, then Anatomy of a Fall is what you need to remind you that cool. oh, there are great films being made for grown-ups. <laughs> <laughs> Fun. Fun. This oh, is the God. first one I'd watch only because of dog. Yeah. So, yeah, dog is great. Dog yeah. is really good and ha- plays a crucial part in mm. proceedings. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> As does a um, reggae, uh, not reggae, but like Jamaican steel drum cover of um, a 50 Cent song called Pimp. Okay. Um, that plays a very important part and it's very hard to get it out of your head afterwards. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah, it's incredible. Cool. You say Hitchcockian, but this is the kind of movie that could not have been made when Hitchcock was alive. It's so uh. modern. Yeah. And oh, just speaks to us so much. There's so much more that's going to come out of it, out of it on subsequent viewings. Oh, love it! Cool. <laughs> on to something a little quirkier, but also aiming to challenge mob mentality and unwanted celebrity status. It's Dream Scenario. Mm. This is an A24 film, and it is quintessentially an A24 film. It has a mad but very intriguing premise, a very lo-fi 70s indie film aesthetic, stunt casting, and social commentary wrapped up in weirdness. Mm -hmm. So, we have Paul Matthews, an insecure and fairly insignificant man, played, uh, in spite of what I just said, by Nicolas Cage. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And people have started dreaming of him. He's just showing up in people's dreams. He's never doing anything. He's just standing around looking innocuous, usually while something bad is happening, but he just is there and doesn't isn't able to do anything. Uh-huh. But everyone is seeing him. Attempting to exploit the situation to further his career and social standing, he soon finds that sudden fame can suddenly become infamy. Mm. First of all, amazingly stylish film again. Um, that's sure to make a name for first-time director Christopher Borgley. Or Borgley. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's getting to be a bit of a house style for A24, which I worry about a bit because it could stagnate if it becomes too generic. Yeah. But it's very opposed to the bland digital sheen of modern blockbusters, so I'm still all for it at the moment. Um, the meme-baiting trailer promised a very quirky comedy, capitalizing on the reputation of Cage. You know, oh, it's yeah. Cage playing yeah. a regular guy. Yeah. And then, you know, the trailer then pivots into horror. Ooh. I think people may be surprised and hopefully pleasantly surprised at what a deliberately paced film it is what a sort of quiet drama it is punctuated by sort of you know exploring these menacing dreams which are quite subtle i mean some of them are just funny but there's a yeah there's a subtle there's a quiet horror to the dreams which i enjoyed a lot um the film has this pervasive sense of eeriness throughout the first two acts Mm. then there is a pivot but not to overt horror but to overt social commentary. Mm, okay. The film becomes very clearly about council culture as the dreams go bad and suddenly, you know, Matthews becomes the sort of figure of hate in the community. As an analogy, that's a bit messy because ultimately Matthews has no control over his fame or his reputation. He gets famous for no reason. He is then 
cancelled for no reason, through no fault okay. of his own. Uh-huh. Which is a bit of an old man approach to cancel culture. Of, you know, it could <laughs> yeah. happen to you for no reason. Absolutely like, yeah. no reason. You could be doing absolutely nothing, just saying your regular normal stuff. Yeah, and it could stuff. happen to you. And then just you'll living get your regular normal life. Yeah, sure. And you talk about the migrants a bit too much, but that's regular and normal. It is, and suddenly you'll be cancelled for no reason. So, for no reason, and definitely not your comments about the migrants. Yeah, and the genuinely traumatized people you know, around him are portrayed as perpetrators mm-hmm. of sort of oppression against him. So the constructed reality of the film gives a, gives way to accommodate this fairly heavy-handed and obvious okay. social commentary. Incidentally, the film is also produced by Ari Aster, I'll just say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the the Bow is Afraid guy. Mm. So it's a remarkable Nick Cage, Nick Cage film because he disappears into the role, which is very Ooh. rare for Cage. Sometimes he's good, sometimes he's terrible, but he's never not there. He's never okay. like... You never forget it's Nick Cage, but you do in this. Ooh. You know, this might be his most legitimately good performance for a very long time. Um, and it's a very well-made film, and I'm thrilled that a black comedy and horror film, you know, can ha- can explore these themes in such an accessible way. It's just not entirely satisfying come, in the, en- come the end. So okay. subsequent rewatches will be interesting, but at the moment it's just four stars, just because it oh. does that most tedious thing that I hate a movie to do, which is to become obvious in its third act. Yeah, four okay. is generous, but it really is very well made. Okay. All right. It's well. a good watch. You, it, It's in- entertaining. All right. Cool. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Nice. Good for you. Yeah. Good, good for you, Nick Cage. Good for you, Nicholas Cage. You crazy man. Nicholas Cage. Nicholas. Hey, c- Nicholas Cage. Hey. <laughs> but if you want a better experience on real inappropriate behavior then we need to talk about how to have sex. Paul, I'm too young. I don't <laughs> oh, need no. to learn this yet. Well, unfortunately, you're never too young to learn about some of these messages. Mm. Because Molly Manning Walker directs this film about three British teenage girls who go on a heavy partying holiday in Malia, uh, where they are going to forget about their pending GCSE results and just drink, club, and have some sex. Ooh. A prospect that's more than a little daunting for Tara, Mia McKenna Bruce, the only version of the group. It's and they're waiting for GCSE results. That means they're like yes. sixteen. <laughs> yeah, I think they're they they're young. They yeah, are rather well, young. Well, you know what? <laughs> I'm showing my innocence there. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's GCSE and not A level. Nevertheless, they're waiting for some important results. Sure. It feels it feels super GCSE, to be honest. <laughs> this is an exper- this is an intense experience. Right away, we're locked into this heightened experience of the girls. We're up close with them, singing, screaming, running teens. You know, it's like eras mm. again. Um, as they undertake leisure activity that I would consider hell. <laughs> but they, it, it's very clearly meant to be fun. Yeah. Uh, the, these are characters who would not be the main characters of a film. Sure. You know, these are just the characters who would be seen by our main character, who's a sort of quiet, thoughtful type. Mm. You know, who would see them and sort of think, oh, if only I had a normal life instead of being a vampire slayer, whatever. Instead, <laughs> this is the, this is their perspective. This is the perspective yeah. of the sort of party girls. Um, and at first you understand the mania, the fun and the friendship, you know. Then men get involved. Oh, why? Yeah. Why? Why, Tilda, why? <laughs> Tilda, why have you done Tilda, this to us? Tilda, why did you let the men in, Tilda? <laughs> My mom's still not back from My the God. toilet. You're invited to be charmed and then intimidated by the men. It's this thing where they just represent an, un- an ambiguous presence. Mm. You know, what do they really want? Are they harmless? You know, this kind of thing. You know, 
they can be quite fun, but also scary. Yeah. So you're very much in that perspective, and that's down to Walker's incredibly intimate direction, which is alternately warm and just truly uncomfortable at places. Mm. And the performances, of course, from, especially from McKenna Bruce, who is just captivating in the lead role. Mm. Very expressive without overacting. Um, yeah, the whole film is just brutally effective at putting you on into a very disturbing and formative experience. Hmm. Not to say that this is somehow inevitable or anything like that, but it just feels like a horrific coming of age where innocence is kind of, you know, destroyed. Because the film does end up focusing on sexual assault and is bound to start conversations about consent because it seems to be taking aim at people who gatekeep words like assault or rape to Mm. situations matching their very specific criteria that they have. You know, they know what one looks like. And if it's not that, well, then you're overreacting kind of thing. What happens here is unambiguous, certainly, and Mm. you are invited right into it. But yeah, it doesn't meet that classical definition, Titus Andronicus, (laughs) you know, (laughs) depiction of what this is. And so, yeah, it's, it's good for that. It's good for inviting you into the experience of a much more insidious but equally terrifying and horrible experience. Mm. Um, it's a powerful work of empathy, which is fraught but not grim. You know, this isn't a depressing film. It's not Gaspar Noe. This is a film about friendship and decency that does not allow the experience of surviving assault to be the defining feature of its richly complex lead character. Obviously, this is a difficult subject matter for many, but I would urge everyone to watch this because it's one of the best films of the year and I'm Ooh. thrilled that... It's British talent that made it because cool. this is such a nuanced and humane perspective on mm. all of this. And wow. I just love that, yeah, that Brendan managed to make that. So, yeah, five Britain. stars. Britain! All right! Britain. All right! All right! All right. All right. Tilda! Tilda! Uh, right there, Tilda! <laughs> Get him down yet. She would. I think I think if, you, if she was just walking along the street. That means Tilda's up for being shouted into a pub yeah. to have some pints. Oh, yes, all right. Would. Oh, yes. Okay. Yes, rather. Marvellous. Yes. Marvellous, oh, I haven't, yes. Done th- I haven't done this since uni days. Yes. Neck em. <laughs> Um Cool. Sounds, yeah. sounds like an interesting film. Yeah, I really do recommend it. Because again, it's, it's tricky because it is about what it's about, but it's just excellent. Cool. It, yeah, it really is. And it feels very authentic. Nice. Oh, we love that. Yeah. But now for something a little less nuanced. <laughs> a sledgehammer <laughs> to the face. <laughs> Let's talk about bottoms. Love them. Love. Love them. them. Great. <laughs> really good. Love having one for sitting on. <laughs> love looking at them. <laughs> it's funny because there is amb- ambiguity in the title, but I'm pretty sure it's in reference to certain aspects of queer culture in which sure. there are tops and bottoms. Mm-hmm. I think so anyway. Um, ask ask your parents, kid. Ask your kids' parents. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> kids, good luck. <laughs> now, yeah, from Emma Z- uh, Seligman, who directed Shiva Baby, uh, which I didn't end up seeing. It's a very well-respected sort of comedy from last year, a sort of romantic comedy, from what I understand. Um, but okay. we have the story of PJ and jo- Josie, the least popular girls in their high school. Mm. They are regularly ignored by the popular girls to whom they are both attracted and earn the ire of the incredibly toxic football team, the Vikings, which the whole school is expected to support. Determined to improve their social standing and get off with some cheerleaders, they start a girls-only self-defence club. But from there, things start to become complicated, as the true intention behind setting up this club threatens to be revealed. Hmm. The charm here is the performances. Yeah. I, uh, Ayo Edebiri, 
is absolutely fantastic as Josie, who gets drawn along in her friend's sort of harebrained uh, scheme. I think I gravitate to her because she's deadpan. (laughs) And a lot of the other characters are overacting and sort of being big. Sure. She just has this really excellent, small delivery and awkward poise that I find to be incredibly funny. (laughs) Uh, Then you've also got uh, Nicholas Galitzine, I believe, Galitzine. Uh, Ruby Cruz and Marshawn Launch, uh, Lynch, sorry, who are also really funny. Just again, really good comedic performances. Mm. The off-putting elements are tonal, a little okay. bit. Really, it's just the humor. Actually, I think it's this improvised comedy that doesn't sit well with me. Lots of rooting around, looking for the punchline. You know, limp yes ending and reliance on throwing in a vulgarity when you can't think of anything else to do. So the the comedy's not quite there for me, but. Also, there are tonal issues because it's certainly a dark comedy and it's very fun to watch it go off the rails and explore very important topics in an irreverent and accessible way, which is great. But sometimes it, the the unreality of it just makes it feel like something like not another teen movie or mm. detention. Okay, yeah. It just, uh, I don't know, there's some feeling of just insincerity there which puts me at, at arm's length. It also does fall short of actually saying anything too meaningful about the experiences of these two gay girls mm. trying to make sense of their place in the society and ending up adopting similar predatory behavior as the men who, tr- you know, the women are terrified of. So there's something there. It just doesn't come out really. And maybe the format of this film is that it can't because to do so would be to get too real or sincere. And this film can't do that. Mm. It's fun, you know, yeah, but really toes the line between fun and irritating. Okay. <laughs> maybe I'm just too old for it. As maybe. I always have been. I've maybe, always been too old for this Maybe you've been born kind of too old. Maybe. Mm. And it's a shame because, well, no, ultimately this is just the kind of comedy I always complain about. And it sure. is the go-to comedy style for America. You know, it's just... Okay, I see what you mean. Yeah. The Seth Rogen style mm. rambling kind of thing. Mm. Some of the visual gags I prefer in this. And there's a good sense of satire that I actually did enjoy. And the ending is quite fun. But you do have to sit for an awful lot of improv to get there. Oh. Yeah. Oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, well. Oh, well. Comedy's hard. Comedy is very difficult, yeah. Comedy might be the hardest one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. you got to actually have jokes. <laughs> you gotta, yeah, you got to have jokes, I think. And not, yeah. and a lot of Honestly, people say you don't have comedy's to. the hardest. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Well, speaking of uneven experiences with a lot of potential... Is cat person. Huh? Cat person. Okay. What are you still naming real films at this point? <laughs> it's starting to sound like you're making them up. <laughs> You've moved out of London, Jen. You're not seeing enough buses. Yeah, I, I, apparently. I'm not seeing any buses, actually. Yeah. <laughs> I thought I saw one, but it was a repurposed tractor. <laughs> the kids were hanging off. Um, yes, this is based on a article, in fact, so it's kind of a Zola-esque thing. Um, Margot is a college student who works at a cinema. Um, she's working there when suddenly she starts a kind of flirtation with one of the patrons named Robert. Um, she's also, yeah, she's studying college, and then, uh, can you tell I didn't write out my notes for this one? <laughs> um, <laughs> no. Anyway, she's studying college, like she's I said. She's studying college. She's studying college her. and trying to keep this relationship going. <laughs> um, when suddenly, you know, they have a really bad date. She keeps going along with it because she doesn't want to be rude. Ultimately, the big flaw is that she doesn't have the nerve to tell him to go away. But when she finally does, his behavior turns toxic. Mm. 
So there's a really great thing going on here about talking about power dynamics and modern relationships. You know, the idea of being too afraid to tell someone you're not interested in them. The movie starts with a quote from Margaret Atwood, which is something like, mm-hmm. men are afraid women will laugh at them. Women are afraid that men will kill them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've heard that. That's the mantra of the film. And mm. it really rings true. There's this wonderful direction from Susanna Fogel, which is, you know, very deliberate, but captivating, very intense once again. Um, and Michelle Ashford's script is very beautifully well observed. There's a lot of interactions in there that made me feel very called out mm. <laughs> in terms of some of my bad like etiquette and yeah unfortunately i fall short of being as bad as this guy fortunately yeah i imagine but so. there was there was a moment where i nudged katie and leant over and said katie i own that shirt <laughs> and then later on in the scene of the really bad date when he takes her to see the empire strikes back at the, <laughs> at the cinema she works in uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. When she hates Star Wars and doesn't want to go to work for a date. <laughs> and then afterwards gets really mad at her for not liking it enough. <laughs> mm. And then during all of this, I just nudge Katie. I'm like, Katie, I'm wearing that shirt right now. <laughs> I mean, look, owning a shirt doesn't make you evil, Paul. <laughs> it, it was the style of shirt. It's it all the, the horrible things you do whilst wearing that shirt that makes That's you true. evil personally. That is true. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Brown is the guy, and he's the uh, brawn rather, and he is fabulous. Is this mm. just? I mean, one, I remember I had a friend who disliked Barbarian because she said no woman would ever put themselves in that situation. Mm. At the beginning of that movie, a woman shows up in an Airbnb, yeah. and Justin Long is already there and claims that it was his booking and that there must have been a mix-up. But you can stay on the couch if you like. And to my friend, no woman would have said yes to that. They would have left immediately. This movie, this guy is red flag the man. Yeah. There is nothing about him that is not a red flag. Get out of there. Yeah. Um, but you kind of, you buy into it because of Amelia Jones playing the lead is so endearing and affecting and you just want what's best for her. Um, yeah. Which might be a sort of uh, sinister paternalistic instinct coming out, which I can address in my own time. Thank you very much. There's no need to write a comment. <laughs> Nevertheless, you you want her to do well and to get away from this awful guy. And mm. Isabella Rossellini is also in there um, as this rather hilarious um, uh, sort of professor who links everything back to the sort of behavior of ants. It's all very good until mm. Mm. the end. Okay. Because I went and read the short story sort of, you know, article that this was okay. based on. It reaches a climax that is brilliant but would not work for a movie. Or maybe it would be tricky to make it work for a movie. Maybe it could, because it's the moment when things become overt. And actually, the moment is in the trailer. Okay. The trailer gives away the plot up to this point where the article ends, and you're about two-thirds into the movie. And then the final act, it decides to try and go crazy. Okay. It throws the reality out the window and makes it big and silly and turns it into a thriller. And it's disappointing. Right. It's really disappointing. It reminds me of that point in A Bigger Splash, a movie I, for the most part, love, but there's a Mm. murder in it near the end. And as soon as the murder happens, I really remember thinking, ah, we're back into the territory of movie stuff. Yeah, fair enough. This is no longer an intensely relatable piece of real life. This is movie stuff. Mm. So great. Let's find out what kind of movie we're in. And that was the, the shift here. And it's unfortunate because this is two thirds of a very good film. Hmm. What okay. did I give? 
I gave Dream Scenario four stars, didn't I? Mm, Despite I the fact so. I didn't like the ending. This, the, yeah, Dream Scenario is better than this, I think. So this is three stars. Okay, fair enough. Shame. Because for a while there, it, was, it wasn't quite fingernails in terms of me loving it until I hated it, but it mm. was uh, it was disappointing. Ah, shame. It is a shame. Shame. Shame, Tilda. Shame on you, Tilda. My mother is still in the toilet. <laughs> just as soon as as soon as she comes back, you just can as get soon, another question just from the as audience. Soon. Just as, just wait. She has a massive bladder. <laughs> Before while she whilst we're waiting, I can tell you about another horror movie that's much worse than the one that you were in, Tilda. Oh, okay. The Exorcist Believer. Oh. God played a trick on you. Did he? Yeah. Oh, that makes sense. He did. He did when he tried to get you into the cinema. Um, he did when he signed me up for this podcast, am I right? <laughs> oh my God. Yes. Wow. I'm the god of this particular world. <laughs> Isn't yeah. that depressing, folks? Oh. <laughs> perhaps Do I better. can sum it up. Perhaps I can sum it up an island for you all. Through the power of words, I might invoke a sort of mystical land where we can dwell and talk about terrible movies. Yay! Yay! It's better than nothing. Wait, is that Britain? Wait, you're not talking about Britain. Oh no, that's right. It was yeah, a beautiful magical island where skyscrapers jut awkwardly up into the horizon, and all of the resources are gathered into one small centralized place where nothing quite works anyway. But at least it's better than everywhere else. And we do. Then they have all the fiber. Just all. They will have all the fiber and all the movies and all the money and all the movies. And nevertheless, it will still be entirely overrun by people who are incredibly insufferable and a violent police force who will take against you for no reason. And one guy with a terrible shirt who does (laughs) evil things. Who goes around, who does terrible evil things and you're going to worry about him. Mm. And one of the things he's going to do is tell you about the Exorcist Believer. Mm -hmm. This is the legacy sequel to the 1973 horror masterpiece by William Friedkin. It's been 50 years, folks. The film that made my mum leave the cinema and have to go get a stiff drink. Yay! Yay. <laughs> well, she can sleep through this one like I did. Okay, great. <laughs> this film was directed by David Gordon Green of Pineapple Express fame, <laughs> who recently concluded a, concluded a trilogy of sequels to the original Halloween. All of which I found to be quite interesting, if not consistently successful. Uh-huh. This film ups the ante by having two little girls get possessed by some kind of demon. Double the fun. Uh, forcing, double the fun. Forcing all of their parents to consider the drastic step of recruiting an exorcist. Oh, not just disowning them. Putting them in a cardboard box and dumping <laughs> them. <laughs> just shoving them out to sea. Yeah. Hansel and Gretel them. <laughs> just Hansel and Gretel them, folks. Just Hansel Look, and Gretel them. You can still do that in this day and age. There's not as much greenery as there used to be. But you'll but find you can, a wood somewhere. Yeah, find in a Scotland. Wood. And just make sure they don't leave any, don't leave them with any sweets they might use to yeah. try and get home. Yeah, exactly. And you'll be fine. Mm. So, I think it should be impossible for filmmakers to undertake an Exorcist movie without being very aware of just how watered down this brand is to horror audiences. Mm-hmm. And even general audiences at this stage. And I don't mean the three and a half sequels to the original movie. Only one of which was actually any good. <laughs> okay. You must be aware of the hundreds of Exorcist movies over the last 50 years. Ripping off, that movie has become a genre of its own that has failed to produce a second masterpiece. Yeah. 
we talked about this a bit with the Pope's Exorcist. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. It's just just knockoff after knockoff because you can't copyright the word exorcist, so there is no <laughs> brand here. Sure. There are a half dozen good exorcist films at the most, as I believe we named in the other review. You mm. have to be aware that the iconography of that original film has become trite. So if you're going to make an Exorcist sequel, you have to do something to make it stand out from the sheer mass of Exorcist ripoffs produced over the last half century. And it it doesn't. It it starts <laughs> okay. well. The okay. hi- it starts in Haiti, where you know our main characters mm. are, and they experience a, a sort of um, a situation that kind of sets up their situation, although not the possession. Weirdly, okay. Um, there are ideas of guilt and resentment, which could lead to some new places. And then the girls go missing, and again, there's a half dozen movies I can point out that do the whole missing child anxiety and horror better, but it's fine. Uh, and then the girls are find, found, and it becomes just the dullest example of the genre. Nah. You know, completely generic examples of this premise, like The Possession, or The Right, or The Haunting in Connecticut. Movies I would never really feel the need to watch again are more competent and affecting than the last hour of this film. Oof. So, yeah, the original film... It has these iconic, scary moments and shocking images that only really work because of how grounded the filmmaking is in general, you know, in a non-horror aesthetic that you can relate to and mm. you can, you know, find the characters endearing and convincing. This movie has none of that. This movie has bland scares firmly in the Blumhouse spooky teen horror tradition, mm. complete with a generic horror aesthetic throughout. You know, the movie looks like a horror movie in every frame. There's no new memorable iconography, shallow characters, and a completely arbitrary story bereft of any deeper meaning. You know, religion, family, remorse, it's just cliche. And the worst thing I can say about it is that I just, I don't know why it exists. You know, this appears to be a purely financial exercise. Sounds like it. Sounds like it. no raison d'etre or joie de vivre. It's en soi, in the Sartrean sense, like a bird or a rock. No no (laughs) cul-de-sac. (laughs) <laughs> There's no cul-de-sac no. here. No, uh, it is wait, entirely. I can't, think of, I can't think of another single other French uh, <laughs> word that exists in English. I want a little bit of space to appreciate my ensoir comment. I, I it appreciated just, it. It just is. It just is. Just is. is. You seem very classy using that. Thank you. Yeah. I hope so. I hope Tilda yeah. noticed. Yeah, she didn't. Oh no. She's looking at me, ma'am. Oh, your mum came back. Yeah, she did. Aww. Now they're staring at each other dead in the eye. Neither one has blinked in a couple of minutes. I knew they'd get on. Yeah, it's lovely. <laughs> Mum hasn't bonded with anyone this much since <sighs> forever. Aww. That's the Tilda Swinton effect, everyone. Mm-hmm. Two more movies. Two more? I wish I'd saved a good one for the end. <laughs> <laughs> I got two more bad movies to talk about. Yay! Oh, Five Nights at Freddy's. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I saw the trailer for this. Yeah. Josh Hutchison uh, plays... FNAF? Oh, yeah, FNAF. FNAF, FNAF shouldn't indeed. shouldn't FNAF, and I really enjoy it, the, the acronym. <laughs> Let's chat FNAF. some FNAF. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Josh Hutchison plays Mike, a desperate man trying to care for his younger sister, Piper, who may end up being adopted by her mean old aunt for ridiculous reasons that don't make sense. <laughs> Consequently, he has to get a job really fast, Unfortunately, his creepy career counsellor, played by Matthew Lillard King, uh, ah. sets him up with a gig as a night watchman looking after a creepy old abandoned novelty restaurant complete with frightening animatronics, which are alive, obviously. 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 Now, I have to confess, I never played the original games, but I'm aware of the premise yeah. and the gameplay. 
you know, it's an intensely interactive horror game where you have to just look at various monitors in order to keep an eye on various creepy mm-hmm. figures as they move gradually closer towards you and you have to try and manage your resources so that you can shut various doors and try and keep them away. Mm-hmm. Very Sounds simple. like my idea of hell. Yeah, it's unpleasant. It's a very simple premise that may have I hate been... it. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. You know, and that's, that's good. Like, the premise alone is very strong. It's a strong yes, horror yeah, yeah, premise. I, and part of me, in that sense, likes it for that. I'm like, wow, yeah. sounds really good. I absolutely do not want to engage, engage with it on any level. And uh, a couple of months ago, they brought out an, uh, a VR version. Yes. I was just like, ow, wow, wow, wowie, wowie. I never want to play a game less than this ever. <laughs> Please, no, not in VR. Right. So with that kind of anxiety just around its concept. Yeah. This should be a slam dunk. It isn't. Because for some reason, the makers of this film decided that the robots should be misunderstood and that a different Uh villain should emerge, allowing the scary robots to team up with our heroes. What? Now, one of the screenwriters is Scott uh, Calton, uh, who made the original game. So maybe, I don't know how many of the games there were, but I get the sense that there's been quite a lot and that there's been a lot of lore building, which some people take Uh, very seriously. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, there, are, there is quite a fan base, I think, for this game. There is, and consequently, it FNAFers. has for the Fnafers, and I think the Fnafers may have ruined this. Whereas the Swifties rescued their film, <laughs> the Fnafers have very yeah, much. Ruined let's blame this it one. on them. Let's blame it on them, because yeah, this is. It's just. It's really bizarre. We spend most of the movie exploring this situation with Josh Hutchison and this dream that he keeps having of his missing sister. Okay. And it's just, it's so far removed from the premise that you're, everybody's actually here to see. Add to the fact that this is an, a PG-13, which renders it no. a little bit toothless. Yep. Yep. And there okay. are plenty of family-friendly horror movies that go a lot harder than this does. It's just, it's all very muddled and quite toothless and should only really be of interest to fans of the original game. So I'm surprised it has earned so much money. Okay, maybe there's a lot of fans of the original game. Oh, maybe there are, and that's enough. Maybe the FNAFers are enough to make this bankable. But mm-hmm. if they do make more, I hope they actually deliver on the promise of the premise. The premise's promise. The premise promise. The premise promise of this property is enormous. And mm. this film doesn't capitalize on it at all. Do the obvious thing. Yeah, know? yeah. just make it a would... horror film. Just make yeah. a real creepy horror film. Yeah. I don't know. You it's, don't need. It doesn't need to have a twist. It just needs to have. You just get scared a lot, and then there's a finale where some people die. This just viscerally. Yeah. It would be. It would know. be remiss not to mention Willy's Wonderland, a film that basically uh, ripped yes. off Five Nights yes. at Freddy's, um, starring Nicolas Cage. In fact, um, uh-huh. yeah, made last year. Which I will say, yes, I think it was better. It wasn't a terribly no, good film wow. either, but it was better. But that mm. film also just didn't have enough faith in the central concept mm. and kept doing maybe, lots of other stuff. I don't know. Maybe just, it's just that it kind of there's not so much you can do after a while. Maybe, maybe and that's why it's I a bit it just, thin. Really, it's worked it for a game, a, but as a film, I mean, it's like well, you've, you've run and you've hid, and they've chased you, and you've run and you hid, and you've been jump scared, and yeah. you shut a door and you opened a door, and that you've been jump scared again, and I. I, I they have to keep coming up with reasons for people to come to the, the place so that they can yeah. be killed off in a bloodless <laughs> way. Um, mm. And one of them is absolutely absurd. The aunt <laughs> who is trying to scheme for, mm-hmm. um, you know, to get the cousin back because she wants the welfare money she'll get for looking after a kid. The least sure. effective money making scheme well, in the uh, world. In America, though, it's a different story. 
Really? One kid it is going to really make that is. much of a bankable Not difference? Not that much difference, but there are professional foster parents in America who just foster kids and make money or adopt them and get because they make money off that enough to right. live on. It is wild over there. Wild, wild well, west. <laughs> I guess that's what this is then. But nevertheless, the plan to get him fired is to wait until his shift is over and then break into the place and smash it up. Okay. Why did he get into trouble for something that happened after his shift was over? <sighs> Maybe she's going to make it look like he did it. That sounds yeah. why. Yeah, just just complain against him. Just go in and it's be just, like, uh, excuse just... me, this 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 boy <laughs> stared me dead in the eye and called me Tilda. I don't know. Like, wh- whatever. Just put <laughs> yeah. in a load of complaints. Well, it's like... just arbitrary. It's arbitrary yeah. and it's there in order to get people to come into the place in order to get killed in really unimaginative and boring ways. It's mm. disappointing. Anyway. Boo. That's that. One star. I didn't like it. Monster. This mm. next one, a final one, would have mm-hmm. made sense to put next to Bottoms as a comedy that didn't quite work for me. Okay. But I struggled to put anything else ahead of it apart from <laughs> Five Nights at Freddy's. So instead, it's here. It's Some Otherhood. Okay. A British film, a London-based crime story, a sequel to Anotherhood, which I didn't know until I was preparing my notes. <laughs> <laughs> Did not realise this was a second film. Um, yes, this is a film about two... Hoodlums, I guess. Let me get their Youth. names. They say them about a hundred times, but nevertheless, it's half them. Ruffians. Oh, there's no cast. No cast list. Fantastic. Rico and Kane. That's it. Uh huh. Rico and Kane are two little just hoodlums who hope f- to scheme their way out of the hood and sort of mm. make it big in various ways. And they end up just caught up in a sort of Guy Ritchie esque scramble to try and get money with various different factions trying to put them down or get what they they're after as well okay that kind of thing and it's just it's it's a comedy film very much rooted in comedy and it's again it's not improvisational this one but it does just come down to an awful lot of shouting mm-hmm. and being obnoxious i will say adam deacon and zazzy zonzolo sorry jazzy zonzolo are very charming and charismatic together and their stuff you know their back and forth are relatively good yeah but the film decides to pad out its runtime with these obscene cameos, including Ed Sheeran as a crack addict. Wow. Okay. Jeremy Corbyn shows up. Oh, Jeremy Corbyn. Oh, Jeremy. In the same moment as uh, Linda Robson, I think, from Birds of a Feather. Oh. It's just, it's really distressing. Jennifer Saunders, Peter Serafinowicz. What are these people doing? You're better than this. I have no this. idea. They show up. They say a few really appalling gags uh, in in scenes that feel like they were an afterthought. Like they might have shot this entire film and then got the cameos and so gone mm. back and done extra bits to cram them in. But it's very frustrating. It falls very... It's self-deprecating, but it falls very short of being any sort of commentary on, you know, toxic masculinity or anything like that. It just, it, it just fails as a crime story. It fails as a comedy. And it's it's actually quite annoying wow so yeah i would give that also one star it's kind of irritating but it's frustrating because ultimately you do want movies about young british people you know and there's a big gap here now Mm. especially after all the noel clark stuff came out you really want some people to step in and start making good films i mean we had rye lane but it has to be said that rye Rye lane is is quite a middle class kind of film you know with a lot of art gallery focus that kind of thing i love it it's still one of my favorite films of the year but it's still not speaking to like yeah i don't know there's a demographic that is being left out and it's Mm. a shame because they deserve a better film than this 
Something like, what's it called? Uh, uh, the one in the tower block where they fight aliens. Oh, attack the block. Attack the block. That's fun. Yeah. That's yeah. got youths in. It's got Thingy Boyega <laughs> in, hasn't it? Yes, it has. It's got John Boyega. John Boyega. Yeah. He's a youth. He's a youth. He's a youth and they fight aliens <laughs> and he's fun in it. Yeah. Well, exactly. You need something like that. Yeah. This. That's that's the end of this. That's the end of of the last six weeks. Got October out of the way. And now all that's left is just December. The Christmas release period. Mm-hmm. There's some more fun stuff to happen. There's about 13 big releases left, which we can pick up on in the next episode, as well as maybe a little go at a top 10. I usually reserve okay. that for the One Good Thing podcast, but I think maybe we could have a little go at some of our favourite things of okay. the year. You'll have to remind me what I've seen, but I'll give it a go. <laughs> I might send you a little list of some of the five stars I've had that maybe are available to see if you can maybe watch one or two. Okay. Mm. Before now sure. and between now and New Year. Oh, you ask so much. <laughs> It'll only be the best stuff. Mm. Oh, but yeah, um, that does it for me. Cool. Well, I have some recommendations off the back of Ooh. the very tail end of London Film Festival. Oh, yes. Did you see a few mm-hmm. more? I did get the chance to watch a couple more. Let me just open my note that I wrote so I could remember what I'd seen. Um, so when we did our um, film festival episode, the only thing I, the only feature at length thing I'd seen was Chroma Kid, and that was very uh-huh. good. Uh-huh. And then after that, I managed to watch uh, two documentaries and a feature film, like a not doc, a fiction Amazing. film, a normal film. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed them all very much. Uh, the doc- documentaries were um, one was fire through, yeah, fire through dry grass, um, mm. and I wrote the directors down as well. Are you proud of me? I am. Uh, <laughs> by Alexis Neophytides. I'm going to pronounce that like uh, they're okay. a Greek, ancient Greek Neophytides, and Andres <laughs> J. Molina. Um, yeah, it was very cool. It's about a um, it's a self-made documentary about uh, made by a bunch of um, guys, um, black and Latino guys who live in a public um, like care, residence care facility um, on an island in New in the river that goes around New York. I guess they're not on Manhattan. They're on I think it's Roosevelt Island or something. Anyway, there's a public hospital there which has residency um wing and these are all guys who've experienced gun violence and so Mm. they now live there and they started writing poetry and things and one of them got into filmmaking so he starts making this documentary about them they're like look we live our little life here we enjoy it we have our you know we've got our friends we go hang out by the river smoke some cigarettes have a fun time one of us is making music one of us is writing you know doing rap whatever we're having a nice time yeah. Like we go and talk to kids about gun violence. I'm like, okay, cool. You seem chill. <laughs> and then COVID hits oh. and they essentially get locked down in this facility for over a year and are yeah. not allowed out through the front gates, even at the point where uh, New York citizens are allowed out and about and wow. they have to fight. It's about how hard they have to fight and just how the, because the hospital gets used as a COVID facility because it's a public hospital mm. and they, it's just the sheer battle against the administration and how little they care and just how long it takes them to just be taken seriously. Mm. 
all they really want to do is, well, not get put in the same rooms of people who've quite clearly got COVID. What um, I want to do is not get put in the same room as someone who's quite clearly has COVID. Yeah. <laughs> and to be allowed back out next to, to be able to like go around the island in their yeah. wheelchairs and that. Right. So yeah, that was very good. Um, yeah, it was amazing. made uh, by the people who featured in it with some help, but like it was like a nice, like a self documentary. And the other one actually was a kind of a self documentary um, because the other one, uh, the other documentary I watched was um, Dancing on the Edge of a Volcano by mm. Cyril Aris. Yeah. And it's about the making of Costa Brava Lebanon, which won <gasps> the prize at the year's 2022 London Film Festival. Which we saw together. And we saw it together. Yes. So this is a film about the making of that film. Oh, wow. Because Costa Brava Lebanon, like you, we heard the director talk and they were talking about how it's a film about what was, it was supposed to be about a very hypothetical future Lebanon where everything has broken down and this family has tried to escape Beirut because of a massive uh, rubbish problem. And in the make, during the making of that film, things turned quite bad in Beirut. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, because uh, during the making of the film, well, actually, very interestingly, about a couple of weeks before they're due to start filming, the explosion happens of the um, storage facility on the, the, uh, the port of Beirut, which was, that was 2020... 2020, 2021, um, there was a massive explosion. Blew out loads of buildings. People die. It's crazy. And, you know, uh, it turns out that there was a load of, like, ammonia nitrate or something stored there that had been there for, like, 10 years. And the government all knew about it. And it's, you know, the government's corrupt. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Things, you know, there's all this and there's a load of... Um, obviously, it sets off a chain of problems. You know, people can't get fuel. People can't get cash out of the machines. Yeah. The the um, Lebanese pound devalues massively. Uh, and yet they are like, I think we're going to push ahead and make this film. So it's just about them going ahead with making this film mm. and struggling with everything that Lebanon's going through at that time and continues. You know, it's it's not an easy time for Lebanon. Sure. It's not not been for a long time. Yeah. But, you know, it's had its quieter periods, but this was a huge upset. And yet they still made this film. Um, and it's just, it's a very intimate, um, you know, portrait. I don't think we ever see the camera person, but he's clearly part of the crew. Um, and, it, you know, it's in, it's part, they're a film crew making a film about, you know, it's a making of. But I don't think they expected it to become such a dramatic making of. But yeah, it was really good. And it's especially if you're interested in, you know, sort of the Middle East and um, and Lebanon and that. Um, but also it was just interesting. And you get some more back scenes time, you know, behind the scenes time with oh, wow. all the stars and things. And the, the kids. Uh, oh, the, so the young girl in the film is played by a pair of twins. And oh, they're just, right. oh, oh, yes, just, seeing, just seeing them in it. They're just so lovely. And I don't know. They're there as kids having to process this whole explosion thing. Oh, just the whole thing's so. And the tr the trials they go through to get their lead actor over from Palestine, because partly because it's of COVID lockdowns. Like he ends up having, he has to fly via Istanbul and then he gets trapped in the airport. Anyway, it's worth watching. Fantastic. Yeah. And the third one I watched was super cute, and it's Molly and Max in the Future by Michael Aww. Litvak, and I thought it was so sweet. I had a lovely time. It's a <laughs> it's a it's a rom it's kind of it's a rom com, but uh, set in a sci fi future, uh -huh. and it makes no pretenses about the fact it's not got the biggest budget in the entire world. <laughs> in fact, I don't know what the budget was, but like 
it doesn't matter because even yeah. though like they include you know massive cityscapes which is quite clearly like a green screen i don't care because in a weird way it's quite nice because yeah. it makes the focus just on these two main characters who have incredible chemistry and they're two um american comedians uh and the whole thing's just so charming i had a really nice time and it's very and it's very um feels like a millennial um a very millennial uh rom-com you know with some real obvious they're not hiding the absolutely obvious parallels between like stuff that have happened over the past couple of years and these future made up you know satire like of it in the future i really enjoyed it amazing fabulous Okay. So, uh, yeah, 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 I thought my internet connection had died there for a second, but I'm okay. Well, keep going. <laughs> yeah. Keep going, but, uh, dang it. Keep going, dang it. Um, Good stuff. Yeah, so those are the three other features I managed to watch. I enjoyed them very much. I'll, um, Amazing. The uh, documentaries were great. i to the list and check those yeah. out. But, uh, yeah, I think Molly and Max in the future is the one I can fi- imagine myself, like, comfort watching again. It was just a nice time. <laughs> It was just yeah. a real nice time. It's just a nice yeah. time. Yeah. Isn't that what it's all about, really? I, th- I think I read a quote from the director who was like, um, uh, Harry Met Sally is gr- when Harry Met Sally is great, but it just needs to be updated. And this is that. <laughs> <laughs> this Amazing. is what I wanted to do with that. So. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. yeah. Great. So there you go. I had stuff to talk about. There wow, it's go. weird. Yeah. Look at that. Loved it. Great, I amazing. Until about Rex. two minutes ago, <laughs> I did my homework. I have something well, well to bring handled. to the table. Good stuff. <laughs> Hooray! And I tell you what. Hooray! Else. Let's get out of here. Okay. How can people find out about all of this? All the stuff we're doing. Well, all of this, this being Jen and the Film Critic, um, you can find out about it from us on on the podcast here right now. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at uh, film. I was almost gave up gave out my personal email address then. Uh oh, I'll do that <laughs> at, at, at gmail dot com. You can tweet at us at Screen Mayhem for this is a Screen Mayhem podcast. Uh, you can just tweet directly at Paul Salt. What's your What's your Twitter, Paul Salt? Salty I'm film at, at Salty film at get, Salty film. Get me there. Yeah. I tweet sometimes about films, mostly too. Yeah, and pretty s- much. Yeah, yeah, and sometimes just about network rail, but mostly about films. <laughs> I'm laying off the network rail ever since some fairly prominent people in British film have started following me. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> You're gonna have to get a burner account so you can yeah. uh, <laughs> um, lambast them. Um, yes, I think so. Yeah. Okay. And uh, our fill, our theme music was by Jacob Blundell, and I think that's the lot of the stuff that I have to say right now. Um, so, from me, Jen Blundell, it's goodbye. And from my film critic, it's, it's also a bye. goodbye. It's it's a bye. It's also a bye. Good night, Tilda. Uh, good night, Tilda. You may blink now, Tilda. <laughs> and yet she refuses. Wow. Good night.